It was not long ago that the most ancient and the powerful wizards gathered together for a great battle of their prowess. These wizards used the most ancient and powerful spells. Well, I mean, not Loris levels of power, let's be realistic, but, you know, they had Black Lotus and Ancestral and Atog, of course. One thing they had in common was that they were on a quest for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Even More Eternal Weekends. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook, and of course, Broan. How are you all doing tonight? Phil, I have this like really uh, unnerving feeling right now. Like I'm very anxious. I can't figure out why. I just really want to wake up tomorrow and find out about something. Oh, yeah, we're going to delve straight in. Or... <laughs> Yeah, so uh, for those of you listening on Thursday or Friday, whenever this drops, we're recording Tuesday night. It's election night in America. We're all just clenching our cheeks, and at this point, it's rolling. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, it's 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 definitely stress level 10 out of 10. Tried to open it up with like a nice bro-on joke, you know. They, nope, just, just, just dodge it, just like, nope, everything's miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm not going to lie. I've done a really good job not even looking. Like, I voted a month ago. I I posted what I was going to post. I pitched to some people. I, I made, like, a last-ditch Facebook post that was basically like, hey, friends and family, if you vote for Trump, that's going to hurt our relationship. Like, it is what it is at this point. You should know better. And I actually had a guy message me today who was like, I was going to vote independent, but you really convinced me. And I was like, all right, well, I got one, and I live in a swing state, so count it. Very nice. Yeah, I also voted over a month ago. So all the stuff that's been going around about like, get out and vote. It's great. I mean, more people voting, the better. But I'm like, yeah, I voted like second week of September. This is just like dead time to me now. Yeah, well, it, those, those promos aren't for you, Bryant Cook, who smartly voted a month ago. Yeah, I, like driving to work today, I, I drive through um, some of the uh, the less affluent neighborhoods of Pittsburgh to get to my my place, my place of employment, and uh, going through at six fifty eight a.m., the line was around the block. Like the polls open at seven. Like the they were out, they were ready. So uh, I also live across the street from a polling station. Like if I had voted in person, it's literally directly out my front door, and they've had a steady stream of cars all day. So someone's voting in person. Lots of people, in fact. Well, I hope they yeah, don't get COVID. Too. Yeah. Well, I, I, me too, but I hope they fucking vote <laughs> at this point. So what's going on uh, in everyone's life? Are the, <laughs> are the, uh, I, I guess like uh, I'll, I'll keep the ball rolling. Like uh, talking about mentioning the election was my, my first uh, plan anyway. So uh, Thanksgiving is coming and my parents who are both in their sixties have just been like, hitting me up like, hey, are you coming for Thanksgiving? I think grandma's going to visit from New York. And it's like, okay, you're 60 and I'm worried about visiting you. She's 91. 
and I work in special education. Like, I desperately want to see my grandma because I haven't seen her, obviously, since COVID started. And she's old as fuck. But, like, if there's one person on the planet I really don't want to give COVID to, it's her. So I'm trying to figure out what the safe balance between responsibility and meeting my own uh, familial needs is for Thanksgiving. Yeah, this was one of my bullet bullet points, but man, COVID holidays are are rough. Like Halloween is usually a big one for me. Um, Thanksgiving is usually a fun gathering. Christmas is around the corner. My girlfriend's birthday is tomorrow. It's just like, oh, what are you gonna do for the holiday? I'm gonna I'm gonna largely sit inside and do the same things that I do every day. Yep. But today we have a cake. Have have either of you just brought home a cake in like a moment of COVID? Like I need something different. Just like sit in the same spot, do the same shit. But today I have a cake. I have gotten some cheesecakes delivered to me by my girlfriend for exactly right. that purpose. All right, fills fills in the. I've gained enough strat. COVID weight. Like we just buy so many snacks now. We're like we haven't had this snack before. I don't know. It's awful. I need to lose weight actually. <laughs> Yeah, I also have uh, put on about uh, 15 to 20 pounds since COVID started, which sucks because I was like on a roll. Like I had made like serious lifestyle changes, like charging straight into March. And like I I felt like comfortable and like healthy and it wasn't like a crash diet or like yo-yo diet or anything. It was just like genuinely like I have changed my behavior. And then I got stuck in my house for seven months. My workout habits have gone to crap. So I started watching an anime, and I told myself I can only watch it while I'm working out. So that's been my motivator to, like, do more running in place and that sort of thing. Nice. It's it's a start. I'm, I'm missing out on a lot of motion from normal life. Yeah, that's smart. So how's, how's Breath of the Wild going? Uh, well, uh... I was playing this weekend and found two entire new places, like segments of the map that I had clearly not explored because all of the the shrines and like Korok seeds and whatever that are literally everywhere were unclaimed. And I've, I'm well into the 100 hours level, and it's insane to me that I'm still finding completely untouched places. This game is bananas. That sounds pretty awesome. Oh, like yeah. I haven't played video games in a long time, but that was one of my favorite things about Final Fantasy back when I used to play those games. Yeah, video games are a COVID hobby that I picked up. Like I, like I've played video games in my life, obviously, as just a person who grew up in the '90s and 2000s. But like, I never really owned them myself. But like, uh, you all have been listening to my weekly updates. Like, I, I downloaded Borderlands on my computer and put like 200 hours into that. I still play it once in a while with my brother. We co-op the the DLC and then like Breath of the Wild. I'm just like going ham in there now. So I'm back, baby. I'm a video gamer. So uh, other than video games, what have you been up to? I am also now a dice rolling gamer. (laughs) I I was thinking over the uh, over the covid like one of my friends uh tom conmey he lives in california he runs mages and mentors he's like doing his phd on uh using dungeons and dragons as a tool to educate children and 
I, I'm pretty sure he got like a Gen Con panel this year or, or like whatever. Like he's he's like really making a name. He has like a sponsored D and D stream at this point, and like he he's like just like a a good friend from way back. And just seeing him do all this stuff, I'm like, man, what is Dungeons and Dragons really actually like? Like it must be great because so many people are into it. And then I I was thinking that for months, and one of my friends was randomly like. I want to try DMing. Anyone want to get in? I'm just like, yup. So now I play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I have constructed a character. I'm a dragonborn monk. And uh, the my first uh, actual session of adventuring is this Friday night. And the next 38 Friday nights after that. Because I've been told <laughs> this campaign takes about 40 sessions. So were you drawn so, in by like the mentor name? Is it like mages and mentors and you're like well i love mentor gotta join yeah and then i i made my character a monk nice so no uh it, it wasn't that um it it just seemed super cool and like something that like someday i'm gonna have to hang up the the magic cape like i i'm at like the point like i'm like 32 and like marriage and possibly children are like ideas floating in my uh, like horizon and like Everything I've seen from all my friends, uh, once you have kids, the the traveling for magic stops. So, uh, unless you're a, a neglectful parent. Yeah. We, we used to have this guy in Pittsburgh. We called him Father of the Year. His, like, toddler would just be waddling around unattended at every PTQ in Pittsburgh. <laughs> he would just, like, go find him in, like, the hotel lobby at between rounds or whatever. <laughs> like, some staff member would just be giving him a cookie and keeping an eye on him because they found him. I laugh, but at the same time, yikes. Yeah, big yikes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, D&D as, like, something I can do in town with friends, and it's kind of, like, it's also a huge escapist activity, and I'm really into escaping from reality. Back uh, pre-COVID. Oh, God. Sorry, Phil. Uh, back pre-COVID, I sit in an area at work where a couple of my coworkers are uh, active listeners to Critical Role, the Dungeons and Dragons podcast, and they'll just talk about that like while they're working for hours. So I sometimes hear stuff, but I mostly just drown it out. Yeah, I've discovered Critical Role like since like after I realized after I agreed to be in this adventuring party and committed to like forty weeks of playing the game that I had literally never seen it played. Like, I didn't know what the actual mechanics of, like, making the game happen looked like. So I went to YouTube, and I've just gone deep on Critical Role. Like, their their Dungeon Master is incredible. All right, Phil, I've cut you off, like, four times now. Uh, <laughs> would you like to chime in? Yeah, sure. Um, so my girlfriend and I, on sort of the escapism end, uh, we've been diving into the LEGO Harry Potter series, uh, we picked that up on sale uh, like two days ago, and we just spent the last two nights doing nothing but that, just kind of reliving an old childhood favorite in hilarious Lego form. It's been really, really soothing to just have a nice distraction right now. Yeah, absolutely. Something that you can just pour waking hours into in a way that challenges your brain. Like, great. Yeah, it's the game is not hard. Like it it is a game geared very much towards general audiences, so kids can play it, adults can play it, everyone gets something out of it, whether it's, you know, solving the advanced puzzles or just enjoying the story or whatever. 
it's just been it's just been feel good a lot of times the games i play are really intellectually stimulating and challenging but it's nice to just have something laid back nice the the lego series are mostly puzzle games right like what can i build to solve this situation i'm in yeah it's kind of like puzzle like puzzle combat. platformers where like you yeah, destroy okay. some stuff you build some other stuff and a lot of times there's there's all sorts of cute challenges so for the completionists out there there's so many different things to collect in all the levels and good replayability and such just like legos or excuse me lego it is I see. self it is self-pluralized well, we got to get that right all right brian what have you been up to so I'm sure both of you have seen these uh, videos on like TikTok or Twitter. It's a woman named Sarah Cooper lip syncing to Donald Trump. Well, she has her own Netflix special and I watched it two nights ago. And I was like, I've found her Twitter videos like fairly funny. And I was like, yeah, I'll definitely watch this. After having such high reviews, I was kind of let down. Uh, I just didn't think it was funny. I'm not sure if either of you two watched it, but it was kind of a letdown that I wasted over an hour watching this movie i'm i'm usually the sort of person who bails when i see like this is not going to develop into something that i'm going to enjoy i'm I'm just out that was going to be my question at any point in the hour did you think this isn't great oh several times and i mentioned it to my significant other my old lady and we were both like eh, there's nothing else new that we want to watch just because like we've watched everything like so I watched This Is Us, and that came back, and we watched two hours of that, and we're like, okay, well, that was a fun two hours. There's still nothing new to watch, so. Did you start Queen's Gambit? I have not. What is that? Uh, I, I I watched the first episode today. It's a brand new Netflix series. Uh, it's about, like, an orphan girl at, who is also just, like, a chess savant, and she discovers chess by playing against the custodian in her orphanage, and, like, there's clearly like a pretty big mental health component like her backstory is still developing but like clearly her mom was not right and she's sort of hooked on pills from like the orphanage that's just the first episode i I don't even have any spoilers to give you but like uh it it seems like sort of a psychological thriller based around chess okay well i have seen my fiance watching that when i like make trips down she doesn't okay like her job cannot be done remotely so she just like doesn't work right now pretty much so like i come downstairs to like grab a drink or whatever during the workday and she's just like plowing through another tv show she doesn't really like so um fair enough yeah so i've seen parts of that maybe i'll watch it on my own i know that the mandalorian just started back up i do need to watch the first episode of that yeah timothy oliphant plays another western sheriff oh man i'm in, so in excited i love timothy yeah. oliphant yeah the fucking uh justified is one of the best shows we've ever, been over i think this. yeah yeah oh my god uh, yeah boy crowder and they canceled santa clarita now. diet wing goggins uh, yeah him and that guy who looks just like him <laughs> there's there's another actor who looks exactly like timothy oliphant but like just slightly beefier but only slightly like if you didn't know this guy exists you'd assume it's timothy oliphant i watched the timothy oliphant drew barrymore zombie show on netflix uh, show is gas yeah there's like three seasons they're all super lighthearted and funny like if you haven't watched it and just want something to like binge through highly recommend i can't think of santa clarita diet yes that's it yeah that that unfortunately got canceled it's not coming back for season four but the first three seasons are absolutely delightful well that's how netflix works they sign tv shows for three seasons because they can sign the actors for less money 
and you, the show has to be a huge hit to get a fourth season, which is like part of the reason Stranger Things hasn't come out yet, because they're like negotiating contracts. But uh, other than TV shows, I've been still reading The Boys. I, I feel like a fool for saying that I'd like rip through all six books in like a, two weeks. They're much longer than I thought, but also like I've just had a lot going on in my life. Uh, part of that will be my uh, MTG updates, but I've been doing a bunch of stuff and like I just haven't really had time to read The Boys. I did it. I was reading between rounds of the challenge this weekend and I got through the second book. Uh, it's like interesting to think about because the books were written right after 9-11. So there's just like a lot of strange parallels between like post 9-11 politics and now that still relate. And I find that to be kind of funny. Um, that's about it for my life updates. All right. Who gave us money last week? Who do we love? <laughs> we love Michael Webb, Jonathan Canfield, Evan Graveno, Tyler Garden, Jacob Redfern, and Samuel Best. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast and keeping our editor, Phil Blackman, paid and happy. Thanks, Phil. We, we, we appreciate what you do stapling together our terrible audio into something that sounds like reasonable humans said it. It means a lot. I had no audio issues last week. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not recording from a different computer this week either because we had terrible issues with my audio last week. Yeah, I don't know, uh, listeners at home, uh, what you hear is not even close to what I sound like. I, I'm like a shrieking Daffy Duck sort of Minnie Mouse hybrid in real life. Like, that's my speaking voice. And Phil just does wonderful things every week with that. So I just come off just a little bit reedy and nasally and whiny instead of, like, full cartoon character. All right, moving on to feedback. <laughs> it's going to be a weird night, huh? All right. Yeah, we're there. All right, number one. Um, this is from GreenPM33 on Reddit. It's really interesting that Brian was so high on Felder Retreat. I was very happy with it, but Thomas Metchen also played my list and thought it was bad. Very controversial card so far. Um, Brian, why don't you start and I have some follow-up. So I know that uh, Thomas Metchen plays a lot more magic than I do. He's just an actual full moto grinder. Uh, he probably has more reps than me. That said, uh, the, the the card was a banger. Uh, where you want it, it's phenomenal. Uh, I don't know about main decking a copy. I know some people are like on a main deck one and a sideboard one towards the end of Eternal Weekend. But like having the one in the sideboard is pretty incredible. I also boarded in a way to maximize it. So like if you're on just a different sort of sideboard plan, maybe you don't need it. But it, it did exactly what I wanted it to do. Um, but... Keep in mind, I was also one of the first people to kick Counterbalance out of Miracles and replace it with Monastery Mentor. So I like getting the game done in my control decks as soon as the opportunity presents itself. And Felidar Retreat checks that box. Yeah, that actually leads exactly into what I wanted to say. Um, so Eli Goings, Goblin Lackey 1, said something on Twitter along the lines of Timing your snow opponent out is a very real win condition on Magic Online right now because they're so threat light, uh, especially some lists that are basically are only playing Okos and Uros as their win condition still, for some reason. And I think having extra ways to close the game so that your DNT opponents, opponents can't just like Skyclave Apparition two or three of your decks and then have a Rest in Peace in play, and you're like, oh damn, how do I win now? I, I think that extra closing power is really good. Yeah, I, I may have mentioned this last week, but 
I had an insane snow mirror in the third day of Legacy Eternal Weekend uh, against uh, Danny Batterskull. And both of the sideboard games came down to Felidar Retreat. Like, we just sideboarded in a way that neutralized all of the other threats in the deck. And it came down to who could draw Felidar Retreat and then hit their land drops most consistently in both of the sideboarded games. Like, so that is worth considering. Uh, that Uro looks like a threat, but it's mostly not. Like, that thing is so fragile. It's a great card advantage engine, even when it's getting beat up. Like, Caracas is, like, kind of a fake answer to Uro, but it does keep you from dying in six-point chunks. So, just... I, I like having another thing that also avoids the graveyard, doesn't have an activated ability, can't be red-blasted. Can't so, be decayed. Th- can't be decayed. Yeah, there's a lot to like about that. Alright, moving on to the next one. This is from Clio on Reddit. I just wanted to say I always look forward to this podcast. I think the information is invaluable that's provided here, and the hosts know what they're talking about. We've tricked them, boys. As someone who constantly is on the verge of owning a legacy deck in paper, can you guys maybe discuss strategies which are not in a good place right now, as I am slowly picking up the cards when I can? I always have enjoyed tempo strategies backed by Thoughtseize, but I've had little success in the games online I've played. I'm curious the host's thoughts. So, uh, thanks for the love. We, we're, we're glad you listen every week where we, we look forward to hearing you listen to us too. Um, we, we don't have time for a whole metagame breakdown here tonight, but if you like tempo strategies backed by Thoughtseize, I can recommend Death Shadow. Uh, that deck is kind of cheap to acquire relative to other legacy decks because it plays Watery Grave and not the full boat of duels like most Delver decks do. Uh, it's a Thoughtseize deck. It's a tempo deck. You have Days, Force of Will. You're, I, I think the deck is like tier 1.5, tier 2. Like it's not right at the tip top, but it is certainly playable. And you'll build a lot of the muscle memory that will help when you branch out to other Delver's decks eventually. Like there, there's a lot about the like Delver Days cantrip suite that uh, carries over to other decks. So on piggybacking on what Brian was saying, Dylan Donegan at Pro Tour 25 played Dutch Shadow with no Underground Seas in it. Dylan Donegan owns Underground Sea, but chose to run four Watery Grave, one of each basic as the fetchable lands. Like, you you don't necessarily need it. Um, There's other budget options out there, too. Like, uh, sorry, Phil, Death and Taxes is still considered to be a budget option. Like, it's around $1,000. And when you say that, people from other formats, like modern, especially local modern players, will be like, $1,000 is a lot of money. But when you compare it to Rug Delver or Snow, it's not a lot. Like, you have to put it in, I'm just rambling at this point. Uh, yeah, we're still playing Legacy. Like, uh, all of the, the like cheapness of Legacy is relative. Like, uh, you can basically play humans, like the modern human stack in Legacy. It's pretty close to viable. There's a couple Legacy upgrades you get, but like, that doesn't help your uh, Thoughtseize tempo. I guess that Humans is kind of tempo-y. It's like Death and Taxes with the pedal to the metal. Yeah, and you have a so, Freebooter, Thoughtseize. Yeah, Thalia, Freebooter. Yeah, so maybe Humans is a cool place to start. But uh, it, it, I, I still stand by Death Shadow as my official recommendation Yeah. for your particular situation. More generally, the Thoughtseize decks aren't in the best position as a whole in the format right now for multiple reasons a because of just the strength of the top deckable cards at this point 
and B, because, like, Veil of Summer is something that you always, always, always need to be cognizant of now. But if you want to be playing that sort of strategy, like, Death Shadow is a great avenue to start exploring. Phil, I am so glad you said that. Sorry, I'm going to go off on a side tangent here. Storm players love to bring up how good discard is, and then they'll be the first people to be like, ugh, and then my opponent drew a second hate bear off the top of their deck. It's like, yeah, because every card in Legacy now is insane. Like, discard spells are not as good as they were two years ago. Yeah. It, Amen. The The old philosophy used to be, like, use discard to punch a hole in your opponent's plan and then get through in that hole. And now you thought sees your opponent and you see like Oko, Uro, Arcanist, and it's just like, oh god, why? No, there's so much here. Like, I can take one of those, but... Even just Uro. Like, if you thought sees their one-card hand and it's Uro, you're dead. You just helped them. Right, yeah, uh, so Thoughtseize is, is not in a great place in general, but Death Shadow is a, about as good a Thoughtseize deck as you're going to find right now. So our, our last uh, piece of feedback was specifically for me. It was uh, in regards to me talking about how I thought it was in bad taste to dress as a woman and infiltrate a female city in Breath of the Wild. And somebody said it may be in poor taste for Americans, but you must wonder if it's thought of as poor taste through Japan's social lens. Uh, Nintendo is based in Japan. Zelda is a traditionally Japanese game. So, like, I can see where that is. And I'm just going to say, I don't know the state of Japanese feminism. I I don't. But regardless of cultural lens, I think that women deserve respect. And that's all I need to say about that. Yeah, it's a super interesting topic. And, like, there's a lot of... I I maybe don't want to use the word weird, but I'm going to use it so I don't go on, like, a long tangent. There's a bunch of weird things that tend to happen with gender in Japanese media. Like, there's a big cross-dressing thing in Final Fantasy VII. There's all sorts of unusual people in anime who have non-traditional gender roles and things like that. And there's, there's like, a doctoral study waiting for someone who wants to delve into that. But we're, we're a magic podcast. We, we're, we're not informed enough to talk about all that stuff. Yep, and if I ever saw a group of women hanging out and they said, I don't want any men around, I would not dress as a woman and go and try to hang out with them. I'm just saying. All right, Phil, what's going on in Magic? Um, I've played some really cool leagues recently. Um, I played a Core Tapper deck recently, which is like a real throwback card that never really did anything. Uh, you can sacrifice it to put two charge counters on an artifact. And it's also a creature, so you can also tap it to put a charge counter on a creature. Is that from, like, Darksteel? Yeah, it's from Darksteel. It's, it's like, way back. And it became good when Astral Cornucopia was printed, so that you have it and Everflowing Chalice as things that you can dump counters on. So you can use that to kind of, like, build your own Soul Ring in Legacy, or build your own, like, Black Lotus that gets to stick around. And it was really dumb just playing that and ramping into, like, a whole bunch of Karns and Mystic Forge and things of that nature. Yeah, we have a local who who likes that deck. Uh, at least, like, he plays it sometimes. Uh, and the, the last time I played him, back when there was Paper Magic, I defeated him by triggering the Lethal Prowess trigger with Stony Silence. So I sent him straight to the Shadow Realm. <laughs> You caused COVID. Congratulations. Yeah, it was great. 
So I think a really good troll would be to play Dice Factory, but then be one of those people that's like, oh, do you have paper? Do you have dice? And just like ask your opponent to use your dice <laughs> while you're like just doing ridiculous stuff. I would call a judge, honestly. <laughs> like if my opponent was playing Core Tapper and was just like, do you have dice? <laughs> I'll call a fucking judge. Phil, where yeah. can we find this video? Yeah, the, the VOD's on, on YouTube in, in the usual place, the Thraben U channel. And it's like surprisingly good content. I expected nothing from the deck and ended up putting a really strong result, including going infinite one time. So the the deck does stuff. It was it was premium jank. That's All right, the best. Brian, kind of what jank. about on your end? So in the last episode we did about two weeks ago. I mentioned that MTG the source may not be around forever, so I wanted to bring over some old tournament tournament reports. And since then, I've brought over about nine. I still have three left. I mentioned this. Someone contacted me. They're like, hey, just so you know, all of your old Jupiter Games articles and tournament reports are also missing. And I was like, what? So I did some research. I contacted the owner of Jupiter Games, this uh, store that I used to write for. And they're just like, yeah, no one reads those. We took them down. And I was like, oh, thanks for the heads up. So I used a couple different like uh, webarchive.org and uh, Wayback Machine and a bunch of those to like try to get as much of it as I could and then just dumped it in a blank post on the Epic Storm. So right now, if you like wanted to read these tournament reports, it's just a giant block of text that with no formatting. But I have like between the MTG, the source and Jupiter games, I have 12 tournament reports. I have to do zero of the articles for some reason that weren't rep tournament reports are saved. Like none of the articles were like archived by those sites, but the tournament reports must've gotten enough use over the years where it, they decided to archive, I guess. But I just thought that was a little bit strange. Uh, yeah, other... I, don't, I don't know how the internet works. Yeah. I mean, it's magic. So they have uh, bots that crawl through every website and you have to have um, like a TXT file on your server to tell the bot that it's okay to crawl. And that's pretty much how it works. So like every site gets crawled every few months usually, and then it tries to index what it can. I work in, right, I'm a web Basically, designer. Bryant is a wizard. Got it. So uh, I've done some of this stuff before. Uh, but recently I've updated my YouTube videos to include an end screen. I'm going to I'm going to put an effort into making my YouTube channel a little bit better. I've made some small adjustments this week. Uh, I highlighted Brian and Phil's channels on my own. But so I have end screens now. I had a feedback today that I need to pause at the end of my videos because like I was swinging for lethal when like the next video box came up and somebody was like, hey, I couldn't actually see what happened. You need to slow down. So I'm just going to like they died pause for like 10 seconds at the end of every video before i hit stop recording or something but uh yeah those those little like uh quality of life updates are are really nice like their work up front like like my youtube videos have like a uh, an intro like a 10 second just like music's playing and like there's pictures of me holding trophies and then it links my socials and stuff and then it just kicks into the video and i started just like photoshopping uh uh, thumbnails like they used to just be like a picture of the deck or like a screenshot from the video but i actually make a separate thumbnail for the video so it's nice to look at and i think it's helped i'm lazy and i just have a magic thumbnail and a non-magic thumbnail I'm, I'm not gonna lie it's one of those things that i know 
like for YouTube metrics, I should like have a stupid close up image of my face where I'm going like, Aah! and like have some bullshit image of the week up there. But I, I can't bring myself to do it. Yeah, I have not done anything to intentionally feed the metrics. But like, I, I, I do want people to see my video and immediately know what it's about and be interested in it. That That's important to me. But you have like your Thraben University like banner. It, it's not just like oh, yeah. nothing. Like people know who they're watching at least. So I've been uh, thinking about doing a uh, channel video. Like when you go to the channel, there'll just be a video right there ready to play. So I've been thinking about making one of those. I took a couple After Effects college or After Effects classes in college, but I haven't really used it since then. And I've sort of just been like really anti-editing my videos this entire time that I've been doing them. But I have the skills to like do better. So I think after I'm done testing for the Pro Tour and all that's done, I'm going to put in a real effort into making better uh, like After Effects style videos for the YouTube channel and try to sell it a little bit better. So that's just like on my goals for 2021, I guess. Oh man, this year's almost over. That's yeah. a thing. Yep, TikTok. And uh, since I've already mentioned it, I've started testing for my Pro Tour on Arena. Uh, Arena's so addicting. Like, I just like. Arena's great. I just want to hit my goals every single day. I've started doing the ladder climbing. It's the first time I've ever tried to climb the ladder just because of the season reset. Today I hit Platinum 1. Uh, and I'm just cruising. Like, I really like the deck I'm playing right now. It's definitely my style of magic. I'm just crushing. Um, I've tried a couple different versions, too, and I just like it. Yeah, like the season reset, if you ended the previous season in Mythic, you start the next season in Platinum, and it just, the ladder becomes so easy if you actually continue to grind. At this point, I'm like two months out since I really put any time into Arena. So I'm just like in the, the bottom basement again. Have to climb the entire ladder if I want to. I was so. bronze four. Now I'm, I mean, this reset yeah. two days ago and now I'm platinum one. Oh, nice. So I've been grinding. Yep. Uh, and I didn't realize that there were showcase events this weekend. Like I was talking to someone and they're like, yeah, I'm qualified for the showcase. And I was like, there's another showcase playoff already. And they're like, no, it's like the qualifier this weekend. I'm like, those, it seems like I just played in one of those like three weeks ago. But this Saturday, there's Vintage uh, and Modern. Sunday is Pioneer and Legacy and Limited. So if you're interested in those formats, those are the days you need 40 QPs. I'm really excited about Pioneer right now. So I'm going to try to double queue the Pioneer and the Legacy, I think, and just play the Vintage on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. You play decks that lend to that sort of behavior. So I think you'll be fine. Hopefully. The Pioneer deck can take a little bit to win sometimes if you end up going the high tide route where you have to draw and untap a bunch. But Yeah, get those APMs up. Massage that finger before Sunday. All right, Brian. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to play the Vintage one on Saturday. I actually didn't know it was a thing that was happening this weekend until about an hour ago when you mentioned it, but my win rate has been high enough in Vintage that I should not ignore a decent Vintage tournament. Wow, casting spheres, who would have known? I'm not even fucking casting spheres. I'm casting weird shit from the graveyard in my hand after discarding cards. Yeah, he's on that gack attack. Gack. All right. Gack. That's more or less a lead in to our actual content of the day. Wow, um, we're just skipping but... over Brian. Fuck you, Brian. But. I have an important plug. So 
I, I've been like aggressively whoring this thing all over social media, like Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I hope it made it to Reddit. I don't have Reddit, <laughs> but uh, it, and I've linked to it in the beginning of all my YouTube videos. But I wrote twenty over twenty thousand words. It came out to forty nine pages on my Eternal Weekend experience. Like it, it was kind of an absurd effort. It was like live as I was playing. Playing. Like sometimes literally I'd have the sideboard screen up and I'd be typing out what happened in game one. And like I, it was just like live from the floor reporting uh, from the six Eternal Weekend events. So there's 52 rounds of Vintage and Legacy up there. Uh, it's, it's like my thought process, my analytics, th- things I did well, things I, did, I didn't do so well. And if you're interested in access to that document, it's... I linked it in my recent YouTube descriptions. It's on my social media. You can DM me on like whatever social platform if you want the link. So please check that out if you haven't yet. I think it's pretty great. Quick note. So do you remember uh, back when we had paper events? No. Barely. All right. Well, Phil remembers. In between rounds, I would often take tournament reports whenever I went to Star Cities and I would have my notebook and I would just be writing during sideboarding what happened in game one. And people would be like, what are you writing? I'm like, just notes. And they're like, I'd like to read them because you're allowed to read all notes that the other person writes. So they would just be like reading like, what's uh, DT plus this plus this? And I'm like, you're you're reading it. Like, I don't think I have to yeah. tell you what my scribbles mean. I, it's like, I need to read that. And it's like, idiot tapped out with Flusterstool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. But, uh, like when I first started doing this, I had someone get me because I wrote my opening hand down and they're just like, okay, so don't do that. You deserve that one. <laughs> All right. I guess we should probably talk about actual Vintage Eternal Weekend. Yeah. So those of you who have made it this far, we're a cool uh, 37 minutes into the cast right now. And let's introduce the topic. Um This is a vintage episode. Uh, If you didn't recognize from Dr. Richard Shea doing the intro this week, we are talking about vintage. Both of us, or all three of us, just played a lot of vintage last weekend. Uh, We did sort of a format uh, primer in the previous episode, and now we're going to talk about our experiences doing the format. All right, Brian, uh, why don't you go ahead and start us off here? All right, so. The the way that I prepped for Vintage Eternal Weekend is I played three different decks in the Legacy one, and I know I mentioned in the last episode I was pretty disappointed with that choice. Like, I feel like I wasted a couple shots with just, like, a deck I didn't know that well, or, like, a deck that I liked but didn't actually think was Tier 1. And so I just activated tryhard mode for Vintage, and I decided I was going to find what deck I thought was best and just play it three times. And I... Gen Con was still fresh in my head. I played all of the Gen Con vintage events. I played a a different deck in each of the Gen Con qualifiers. Like I queued on the first one, so the rest were just free rolls. Uh, and I I played a PO, Rug Xerox, and a Hogak deck. And Hogak, is, I think the Hogak deck is really good. And like the various flavors thereof, I think Phil might get into that a little more because that's what he's been doing. Like I think these Agro Bazaar decks are pretty insane. And, but they're just not in my wheelhouse. Uh, I didn't have time to master them in a week, and I feel like I'm, I'm pretty close to mastery of both PO and Xerox. So I didn't want to fuck around with something I didn't love or didn't know that well. 
I, I, when you're playing 10 round events, uh, you, you don't want to be making mistakes and learning from your mistakes on the fly. You do that in leagues, but I didn't have time for leagues. So it was down to PO or rug. And over the past two and a half, three years, if there's an important vintage event, I just play PO. Like I can mess around in leagues with other stuff. I can say other things are good, but I'm going to play PO when the chips are down. And my testing just did not bear out that that was still the right choice this time around. And like I said, the aggro bizarre decks, I think are the the ch- big change. Like those decks, they can put, put you on a two turn clock starting turn one and they have force of vigor and will and mind break trap and negation of their own. So they're incredibly disruptive. Nothing in vintage has ever hit that fast short of an actual combo deck. So uh, having a actual disruptive tempo aggro deck in the format really fucked up PO. And I didn't have time to reinvent PO. I think Brian's going to talk about that a little bit. And the, the like classic Brian's just guy build that he'd been crushing with for months just wasn't hanging anymore. So that knocked out PO. And then I was decided on Xerox at that point. Um, Xerox, we talked about it last week. Those are just the blue, fair blue cantrip decks. Uh, they're called Xerox because Xerox is a copy machine. Every game looks the same. You're just preordained, brainstorm, and such a recall, making copies. Uh, so once I was on Xerox, I just had to pick what flavor. And the big flavors are Bug, Rug, and Jeskai. And each of them has a permanent-based banger uh, where... This card is supposed to stick and disrupt your opponent enough that you can win with your fair plan. For Jeskai, it's Lavinia. For Rug, it's Ren and Six. And for Bug, it's Leovold. And so I I rolled out Bug because their banger costs three mana instead of two. And in Vintage, that matters a lot. Uh, they they get Deathrite Shaman also, but like that's not quite on the level that I needed. Uh, so I ruled out Bug just unplayed. So then I tried Rug and, Xerox, or Rug and Jeskai. And Jeskai kind of sucked. Um, it it doesn't really hang against the bizarre decks. Like you just scoop game one, and then game two you're heavily relying on sideboard cards. Where Rug with its wastelands and Tarmogoyfs can actually like kill the bizarre and then mop up the board in a sort of reasonable way. So uh, I got also Lavinia is much worse than she was because PO is worse than it was, and Lavinia was there to crush PO. So a lot of things shifted, and I didn't love Xerox or didn't love Jeskai. And then uh, the rug one just felt like just right, like baby bears porridge. Like I just slid right into that deck. And Ren and Six looping Strip Miner Wasteland is a true vintage power level play. The the Jeskai build, the vintage power level thing it does is it casts Ancestral Recall and then buys it back with Mystic Sanctuary and then casts it again with Dreadhorde Arcanist. Like it casts Ancestral Recall a lot. But the rug deck does that too, and it also has the Ren and Six thing going on. Uh, I won a lot of games just by like turn two Ren and Six, Wasteland you, Wasteland you, Wasteland you, they concede. That happened a lot. And like I said, you can sort of play fair against the Bazaar decks by clipping the Bazaar, mopping up what they got out of the first activation, and then actually play Magic. So rug it was, and I played it three times. Um, let's say 10, 20, 19 or 10, 20, 29, 30, 30, I played 31 rounds of rug over 48 hours. 
And like I said, I wrote about all of them. Oh, I need a breath. I just talked a lot about my. I'll pick it up. <laughs> so about that. Yeah, pick it up. What I thought but, yeah, that was really interesting that was, was that you had your dock live every single round and you could see 15 people in your dock reading in between rounds, just like everyone was reading your stuff. And by everyone, I mean 15 of the like 400 players. But what I thought was really interesting about it was the day one meta was like really heavy Jeskai and bug. Four hours later, the meta for number two was completely different. And I think a big part of it was your live blogging of your experiences in your deck. Because I faced Rug like two or three times in the second one. And then I faced it a bunch in the third. So you could see the metagame shift in real time over the weekend. And I think that you were the catalyst. I feel like I had a real effect on the metagame too. Uh, I know... um... Somebody who top aided at least one. They may have top aided two. Maybe they made a deep run in the second one. Uh, at like Oinkers the Pig or something. Like Oinkers related. It's a pig name. Uh, but they were on something very close to my list. And they credited uh, me and my content for getting them on it. I got tagged in a few other things by some people who made like top 16 runs. They were like, you know, thanks Boston Roll for the content. Your deck's great. So I, I do believe I was affecting the tournaments in real time. And it also involved like some amount of just like flopping my dick onto the table because I was like straight up, here is my list for anyone to read. This doc is live. If you're my opponent, go ahead to my Twitter, log in. You can see my thoughts about game one that I'm typing during sideboarding for game two. And I just thought that creating that content was worth it in that fashion and losing that edge, like whatever that edge was worth. Like I I just felt like the deck was so good that it didn't matter and it it was pretty sweet i don't think that's the i don't think you're the only person who was doing this sort of thing though so cyrus corman gill and a handful of other people were all testing the the same shops list and cyrus was just kind of like doing beep beep memes for a couple of days and then like julian picked it up and and had some really good results with it and uh static crypt uh david lance also you know obviously had great results with it as, as well so I think there were a handful of people who were re- relatively unsure about what they should be playing, and they saw a couple of stalwarts of a format that they're not familiar with go and say, like, hey, I'm having a lot of success with this, and they just kind of, like, reach out, latch onto it, and try to make a deep run. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and it's cool, because it, nothing like this has ever happened before, where you just have three big vintage events consecutively over 48 hours and it's all on the internet it's all live and you can react like like bryant said like you can you know switch your deck take a three-hour nap and fire in with the deck that just won uh round one in round two and it that's it's so cool how quickly a metagame can just explode around itself under those circumstances all right um Brian, do you have anything else to say, or should I just move on to, like, my prep? Well, my prep is pretty short, so why don't I go next? Uh, okay. So I was pretty locked into playing Four Color Paradoxical Outcome. I went 5-2 in the Showcase Challenge two weeks earlier, and then the week earlier, I went 10-0 in a Vintage Challenge. So I was 17-2 and with this list. I was running really hot. Lavinia was doing really well. 
uh, which is important to note <laughs> based on how things changed. And uh, I was like, I even posted on Twitter. I was like, this is the 75 I'm running. Come get me. Like I was, I'm, I was very happy with my list. And like in hindsight, like I don't think previous Bryant should have been like, oh, I should change my deck right before this big event when I'm having all this success. That doesn't make sense. But it just ended up not playing out the way that I wanted it to. Yeah, so uh, I looked at all of the uh, top 16 lists of the three events. So in the 24 top eight lists, there's one paradoxical outcome. And if you expand that to the 48 top 16 lists, you get four more paradoxical outcomes. So five POs made the the 48 top 16 slots, which is preposterous considering like how unbeatable PO was, I think, before people figured out Vengevine. Like, I, I really think that's the the giant boot on P.O.'s neck right now. So uh, it's interesting because there's like a couple of different flavors of Vengevine, which Phil will get deeper into. But the uh, Hogak Vine is actually one of P.O.'s best matchups. It's the Hollow Vine that's like a nightmare. And that's the one that you were describing. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you if you scroll through my doc. It's it's kind of insane. I think I played against various aggro bizarre decks like nine out of my thirty one rounds, maybe ten or eleven. Like it was everywhere, and I went X and one against it. But like I had to say in the the description of each round, like uh, Hollow Vine, then in parentheses Memnite and blue cards, then like Hollow Vine, Hogak and Deathrite Shaman, Hollow Vine, <laughs> like Krovakin Horror and Squee. Like there's just so many flavors of these aggro bazaar decks, and uh, it's it's pretty cool how that design sp- or that uh, deck building space has just exploded when like somebody figured out that you can do that. Yeah, I think the I think the deck is beginner friendly enough that someone who's not overly familiar with vintage can pick it up and do relatively well with it if they have other good magic skills. And I think it's harder in many ways to pick up other vintage decks. So like as an outsider, I was really looking at playing something like Shops or Hogak Vine that played to the skills that I already knew instead of trying to pick up something that was just like vastly outside of my realm, like say PO or something like that. I'd find PO way harder to approach from the outside as someone who didn't really know vintage all that well. See, that's weird to me because... Like, with at least my skill set and the muscle memory, the buttons I have imprinted on myself already, PO feels like training wheels. Like, the moxes go out, the moxes come up, (laughs) the moxes go out again, and now I can't lose. And just, like, if you know how to sequence around counterspells, you're good. Uh, Or if you know how to, like, commit to a tinker line, you're good. But, like, the idea of just, do I bizarre in my upkeep to just in case my draw step is hollow one Uh, are we at that sort of the stage of the game like do i bizarre with one card in hand hoping to hit like vengevine baskin rootwalla or do i wait a turn so i actually get to keep a card after my like that stuff uh no uh, that that scares the shit out of me i had a lot of fun learning that it was great yeah it's very cool let's delve into that deck um, so it, I decided on like Tuesday that I was going to play in Vintage Eternal Weekend. 
And I, I knew that I could not master the format in a week. And honestly, I probably couldn't even master a deck in a week. So my testing strategy was try to get as much exposure to the format as I could rather than try to go for mastery because I didn't think that was feasible. If you're going to make good plays throughout a longer tournament, you need to know what your deck does, you need to know what your opponent's deck does, and like roughly the important matchups and or sorry, the important interactions and how things are going to play out. And when I recorded my first Vintage League, I was like, okay, I don't know what my opponent is playing, I don't know what I need to play around, and I realized I needed format knowledge, and I valued that format knowledge and information more than I did reps with a single deck. And I'm not, I don't know if that was right, I don't know if that was wrong, but that's what felt important to me. That makes a lot of sense, and like you said, in a format like Vintage, where everyone is doing something fucked up, you need to know what that is. <laughs> like, uh, like I, I think it would have taken you a lot more time, and you would have done much worse if you were just like, I'm going to learn how to goldfish Hollow Vine, and then figure out how that lines up against the format. So just pouring over deck lists, figuring out like, oh, this is how Bug wins, this is how Bug would stop me, this is how PO wins, this is how PO would stop me. Like, that makes a lot of sense. I, I spent a lot of time watching videos. So I played leagues with four different decks, um, and I watched damn near all the vintage content I could find. Um, I watched some of both of your videos, a bunch of uh, I Am Level 1, uh, Justin Ganari's videos, a handful of random streams that um, I, I could find. I, I just lived and breathed vintage for a week. Over my lunch hour, watch videos eat dinner or like am falling asleep watch vintage videos that's a beautiful thing it, it was it was not sustainable like mid saturday i was like and i haven't done my sideboard guide and i was just like i can't i like i'm at my limit i need to like back off and just refresh myself before the tournament starts can we fast uh, forward well, to like sunday night us getting messages from phil going guys i fucking love vintage i want to play more vintage i i need more vintage <laughs> in my life can the next episode be vintage phil's an addict that, that happened at the beginning of the week that wasn't even sunday night like he was like like phil was like uh, like the progression from our point of view for our <laughs> listener was like phil was like maybe i should play vintage eternal weekend and we were like yeah dude do it, it vintage rules and then like the next afternoon, he's like, 4-1 to my first Vintage League ever. Then he's like, uh, like 4-1 to another one with a different deck. Then he's like, I, I did you 5-0-1? You were like, 5-0, I, I think I'm getting it. And this was all in like 24 hours. And then you just like would just like fire in like, I got to put another 4-1. Like, I'm figuring out this and like this. And, the, and like, we watched Phil turn from just a complete noob into a Vintage fanboy overnight literally overnight and then we just watched it snowball over the week and it was delightful because the format is awesome and like that's what a lot of people i interact with experience when they do give it a shot like i this i've played vintage a handful of times mostly for like casual paper leagues or eternal weekends or something like that and this is the first time where i played the format and i'm like oh my god i i cannot get enough of this and it was, like, partially because I was winning and doing really well, and that was enjoyable. 
but I was also just like digging the gameplay and, and the interactions. It was just like scratching all of the itches that I wanted from Magic. Well, Vintage is really yes. fun in the fact that like everyone gets to do their own thing, but it's all just like batshit insane. Like it's every deck is turned up to a 10. So when you have two 10s cramming at each other, it's super fun and high powered, uh, which just makes the games like really exhilarating. Yeah, uh, way, way back uh, for in the uh, So Many Insane Plays article series on Star City Games written by Stephen Menendian. I remember him saying games of vintage are like uh, a standoff between like anime swordsmen where they just like stare at each other for like the first 14 minutes of the episode and you see them like flashback into like their origin story and like their previous encounters with this opposing swordsman and they're not moving. They're just standing with their hand on their katana. And then there's like a like flash of light and they're on the opposite side of the battlefield and one of them is bleeding. And like that is a vintage game. And that was so perfect. And that's still true. And that is not to say like like really digging into that. That is not to say vintage is a turn one format because it's it's truly not like powerful things can happen on turn one. Like you can lose on turn one, but it's unlikely that doesn't happen very often. But big things do happen quickly. There's usually like a little dance, a little like, like your brain is working really hard. But even if the game lasts four turns, like a lot of cool shit's going to happen in those four turns. Yeah, I I have never seen games swing so hard back and forth and back and forth as I have in Vintage, where it's like, oh, hell yeah, I have 14 power on board. Oh shit, it's a tabernacle. Okay, I drew a wasteland. Oh, now I, I bizarred into a couple of blood gas. They're in the yard. I need a land drop. Oh, no, my opponent has used graveyard hate on me. Like, the, the games are nuts. Well, that's why Xerox is so good. So a lot of the times if in the PO Xerox matchup, you'll get down to card parity where, like, maybe both players have one card, one really good thing on board. And all of a sudden, the Xerox player, after going card for card with you, will draw a treasure cruise or ancestral recall or dig through time or some gush like some card and all of a sudden they'll go from being at parity with you to having seven cards in in your hand and you're looking at this stupid preordain that's stuck in your hand you're like all right well i guess i've lost uh yep that's pretty much just how it goes yeah xerox just trades broken early turns for broken later turns and it just builds its whole deck to survive the early turns and it's just looking at the format, flipping it backwards and saying, I'm going to do this instead. Yeah. So in, in looking at like my deck selection, I, I decided that I wanted to do something that was broken. And I was experimenting mostly with Bizarre Baghdad decks and Mishra's Workshop decks. And ultimately I decided on Hogak Vine, which is the non-blue version that has like Deathright Shamans and fair cards that you can cast. I decided on that because it was powerful. It has a like a good chance of not literally winning, but often effectively deciding the game on turn one or two. But it was also a deck that had interaction with opposing decks and wasn't all in on one strategy so that I would fold to hate cards. And I found that my non-blue experience in Legacy was porting over just very, very well to the same sorts of decisions that I was needing to be making with this deck, and I, I picked it up very naturally, which I did not expect. 
All right. Um, does anyone else have anything they want to say about preparation before we start talking about results? Let's go. All right, Brian, let's uh, let's start with you, and then we can uh, talk about the rest of us plebs afterwards. Uh, so my plan of playing the same deck three times, uh, I think it's safe to say that plan worked. I In the first event, I finished 25th. I started 6-0. and This was the only nine-rounder. The other two were 10. I started out 6-0, and and then I lost three in a row, and I think all three of them were winning ins because in some number of X2s did make the cut in all three events, and by starting 6-0, my breakers were really strong. So I'm pretty sure even if I won at 6-2, and two, it still would have been a win and in. And so that was kind of a heartbreaker. Um, the day two, I started 1-2, and two, so I was immediately dead for top eight in round three. And uh, if if you read my tournament report, I even like write in real time like how I'm feeling, like this sucks, I don't even want to do this, like is sitting here for another eight hours worth whatever meager prize payout I might get. And and I, I decided to just push through because I was blogging it. Like I, I thought it would be good for the content to keep going. So I won seven in a row and finished eight, two for top 16. So that was nice. Um, I, I got to live the, the old saying of like, if you go eight, uh, Oh to eight, one, you fear, you feel terrible. It's the worst feeling in the world. If you go Oh one to eight, one, you're on the top of the world. So like I, I was like flying high after that that rally. Also, I'd like to point out that this the first two events were basically back to back. There was like a few hours in between them, and I did not get to sleep. Like I I laid down in my bed and just stared at the ceiling for close to an hour and then just got up. I did not sleep between the first two events. The second one I got a nice sleep in between. That one was actually overnight in my time zone, but like I was tired, I was miserable, I was not feeling good, and just, like, making that 7-0 rally was just like, fuck yeah. I'm in this. Let's go. And then the final event, I got a good night's sleep. I was feeling good about the deck. Uh, I started out, I think, 8-0. and I was 8-0, and and then I lost the last two rounds, but 5x2s made it, and I had the best breakers, so I got into top 8 at 5th. I beat Dredge in the quarterfinals, and then I lost to uh, Static Gripped. Is that is that the name? Yeah, Static Gripped uh, in top four, who ended up losing to Doomsday in the finals. However, it turned out later that the uh, the person who won the tournament on Doomsday was caught on a stream bribing their opponent to let them into top eight. Like uh, they got paired down, or like. Uh, in the way they got paired in a way that they could still make top eight and their opponent could not. And there was just a very obvious bribery conversation live on the opponent's Twitch stream about it. So that person got retroactively disqualified and Static Rift became the champion and I became second place. So uh, it wouldn't be Eternal Weekend if I didn't benefit financially from a judge call. <laughs> that is on brand for me. So uh, going back to uh, the bribery thing, so back when they first introduced challenges, this was about two years ago, the The last round was always top-down pairings. And like a year and a half ago, or maybe a year ago, they got rid of it for some reason. I couldn't tell you why. But all of a sudden, like, you would be 12th or 13th, and you get paired to someone in 32nd. Um, and it just, like, this is part of the problem, that someone that was playing a win inning got paired against someone so far down that they're like, hey, do you mind conceding and I'll give you money? 
or whatever they offered. I don't know. But uh, I think like just pairing top down would help get rid of some of this collusion, but also like they should just make better rules. Like, so I can answer that. Um, that was not an accident. And they have started like probably in the same time frame pairing paper tournaments the same way. Like ninth does not play 10th at like a Grand Prix in round 15 anymore. Uh, at least I don't think so. And maybe Star City started doing it randomly, but the Pro Tour still does. Like, I'm not sure, but I know that it's an intentional thing. And what what they're trying to do is break up intentional draws for like the 5th and 6th, 7th and 8th pairing. Because like, if they get paired down to someone who could reasonably win in but can't draw, then that forces another match to actually play. But it does get weird when somebody is just like way out of contention and uh, the the incentive to bribe is there or ask for a bribe. Like uh, it it addresses one problem and creates another. Yeah, I think we're at the point where we need a, an online magic tournament rules that is actually used. Because I think the uh, like two paragraphs that are in the magic online uh, EULA or whatever is, is not sufficient. And is actually maybe actively bad in some ways. Yeah, I learned in all these discussions about the bribery situation that the Magic Online rules about price splits and stuff are completely different than the paper rules, which has a different set of problems. Like, like in paper, you're allowed to price split with anyone. Like, you can like sit down against your round one opponent and be like, "Want a price split?" Sure, and then you just play it out, and at the end of the day, you catch up with each other and see what you all won. Uh, I make fun of my friend Chris all the time because I call him Doctor Choptopus because he's always chopping with his opponents. Like starting at the win and in, he's just like, "Do you want a prize split? One of us is going to top eight, and then he'll get to the top four and be like, "Do you want a prize split?" <laughs> and then like he'll win the tournament and end up with like ten bucks because he's in so many chops. Like I make fun of him all the time for that, but like you could split with everyone. As long as your split is not tied to a match result in paper. But apparently on Magic Online, you're only allowed to discuss prize splits at all, even like in a way that would be appropriate in paper, in the finals. So <clears throat> that's that's weird. It also seems hard to enforce. Like if uh the if the opponent wasn't streaming, we would have never known that this happened. Like, and there's no judges, like there's no overhearing the table, two tables down discussing bribery. Like there's, it, it's, it's so strange. Yeah. Okay. So like hypothetical, let's say my opponent is trying to bribe me. What do I do? Like tweet at magic online. Hey, what the fuck do I do? My there's opponent a, is bribing uh, me. DEC squid. You could probably message them. I don't know if they would do anything immediately, but you, so part of the problem is that like, it's an old boys club. You have to know, like. You've played Magic Online for years. How often have you communicated with DEC Squid? Exactly. Like you, unless you're in the top eight of a premier event, you have no reason to know who they are. And same thing with like the bribery rules and paper. You you've had to have been around long enough to see someone get screwed over to even know about like the rules that like, oh, you can't ask for anything tied to a match result. But if you concede, I'll take care of you later. Like. Well, if you say that, you're well, gone. But, like that's but, the like, idea. The implication yeah. is there. Like if you've been if you've been in more than one win in in your life, you know that the code is like, you know, will you concede? And the opponent knows they will be taken care of if they do. And 
that's it, and it's it's really tough. Like this discussion uh, fired off on Twitter in a variety of different directions. Um, uh, Patrick Sullivan weighed in and said that uh, the whole system is preposterous, and like Drew Levin weighed in as well, saying like. It is still obviously bribery if your opponent understands your implication when you ask for the concession. But like the magic rules, the line has to be somewhere. And that's just where it currently is. And short of making it a free for all, like, go ahead, (laughs) you can buy wins. Like, where else would you put the line to make it better? And it's just a really difficult thing to manage. And for what I, it's worth, I think that just buying top eights, buying PT invites and stuff by allowing bribery is terrible for the game. So I've had this rule ever since I started playing Magic. Uh, a Syracuse local passed it down to me, but don't split ever. Like, I don't split top eights, like, like nothing. Just kill everyone. And I've had that attitude my entire life. So if you get paired against me, we will be playing it out. Yeah, I think that is a reasonable position to take, Um, though also, like, if I'm paired in a, like, a pro tour top eight win and in, and my opponent offers a split. I will draw into top eight, but I'm not going to price split or, like, anything like. No, I'm talking about a split. Like, we have to play, and I'm offered just, like, a straight up price split. No, like, we're both live. One of us is going to win in top eight. One of us is going to lose and not, like. We're talking about like $20,000 of ec- potential equity. Like I'm taking the split though. I, 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 my policy is I think it's bad juju to refuse the split. Like I think everyone who refuses the split gets like bad karma on them. And I'm pretty superstitious when I play, but I'll never bring up the split. Like if someone else is like, want to split, I'll usually be like, oh, fine. But if nobody brings it up, I'm just playing. I love being the bad guy, just being like, nope, we're playing it out and seeing the defeat in their face. Because now they're like already defeated. You're just going to crush them anyway. <laughs> yeah, so one of my other metrics when I decide if I'm going to split or not is how much money I've actually made on the day already. Like a local like $500 Saturday Legacy tournament or whatever. We split the top eight. We each like make about double our entry free fee like nah i didn't i didn't spend seven hours to make 25 dollars. like let's at least play the top four we each get 100 so like that sort of level i'm doing that math um i i I did split the top eight the top four of the envy that i won like 10 grand guaranteed seemed pretty good with uh the other ringers that were in that top four with me I did not split my Grand Prix that I won. Nobody brought it up, so I didn't either. I don't know. Your mileage may vary. This also comes from a position of privilege where it's like if making this top eight chop uh, pays the rent versus like uh, I'm good either way, let's bash. So uh, different people's life motivations also matter. That's a good point. I can appreciate that. I'm just not in a point in my life where that matters enough to me. Like I'd rather just win it all. When when I was in that Envy top four and they were like, would you like to split for $10,000? I was like, holy fucking 
Christ, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, that happened so fast. So I've been in the finals of two Star City game opens. Uh, fortunately, I've won them both. But the judges come over and they do this awkward dance where, like, we would like everyone to write on a sheet of paper if they're willing to draw or price split. And I'm just like, nope. I don't know. Like, it gets rid of a lot of that. <laughs> I, I do that at the local level. I will do that. Like, uh, if if it's like an eternal weekend trial or something, <laughs> the, they'll, the store owner will literally be like, okay, so the top eight split is $75.00. Brian, are you interested? And I'm just like, no. Like, he will look over the heads of the other seven people and be like, Brian, are you going to do this? And usually it's no at like for small stakes. But if we're talking about thousands of dollars, like I, I will take the hedge a lot of the time. One of my favorites is uh, I was playing a local event in Roanoke, which means th they're fucking stacked and there's a bunch of Star City pros there. Um, and I was in top four of, I think I think it was a legacy event. And on the other side of the bracket, one of the Star City pros is, is paired against a, a random. And the random asks the pro, hey, do you want to split? And the pro just responds, battle, 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 and sits down. <laughs> and I've just, like, always laughed at that. I'll never forget that one. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. Um, so where were we at in terms of this podcast? Oh, yeah, how we were doing in Vintage Eternal Weekend. That's what this episode is about. Uh, I think Bryant was going to talk about how he did. Uh, we, we both did ours, right? No, no Phil has talked about his. my prep. Oh, Phil has more. Yeah. Come on, yeah. Phil, speed it up. We're an hour and 12 minutes in. Jeez, Phil, come on. You're dragging this thing. <laughs> you, you fix your sound and you think we want to hear it now. I mean, I hope so. Otherwise I'm just like talking to myself here while I'm taking up your time. And that's awkward for everyone involved. I'm just watching the two uh, of you uh, with right, your Phil. facial hair twirling your beards over and over again. I feel left out. Yeah, you need a beard. Like this it's is a great, great yeah. I just yeah. On the hangout we are both just picking at our beard hair. And Bryant is a, a little cherub, a hairless cherub <laughs> with a, a Mets hat on. Uh yes, folks, he wears it at home as well as in public. Uh, so, Phil, how did your Eternal Weekend Vintage experience go? Um, I had a weak start and was really discouraged. I think I lost both. I, I lost either rounds one and two or one and three. And I, like I was starting with a poor record. and I was super discouraged because my testing had gone well during the week. Um, and I pulled out of it and ended up with a 7-3 finish for 50th or I guess 48th after two people got DQ'd. Um, and honestly, I'm really happy with that, given my lack of experience and uh, very bad tiebreakers. Um, so overall, for my week of vintage, I ended up uh, 27 and 8, which is 77%, and I ended up 80% specifically with Hogak Vine. I am really happy with my play, but I am not happy with my sideboarding. I think I, that's secretly still... the toughest part of Vintage. Like, playing PO is really easy. It's sideboarding and knowing your role in post-board games. That, that's where the extra percentages come from in matchups. Wow, we should do a whole episode about sideboarding three weeks ago. Yeah. I, I did yeah, not sideboarding follow is always my own tough. advice yeah. for this weekend. I did not have my nice sideboard guide written out ahead of time. Uh, I, I had other priorities, and I, I don't regret that. But I will fully admit that my sideboarding was the weakest part of my game. And I was definitely caught off guard by some of my opponent's sideboarding plans at a couple of points throughout the weekend. 
where they just like snuck a Lavinia into play or something like that. I wasn't expecting. And I was like, oh, I'm, I was not playing around that. Uh, do you think your sideboard cards were questionable or you use them poorly or both? Um, I think my, I think my list was damn near perfect. Like I, I, Bryant found me a list. He got me Mike Noble's list and it was, it was fantastic. And I was very happy with the cards that I had in my sideboard However, I was somewhat uncomfortable with which cards I should be boarding out and in which amounts because I'm playing an engine deck. So every time you cut a castable creature, it's harder for the Vengevines to come back. Every time you cut a Vengevine, you have less explosive openers. And then there's times where you have to be thinking about whether or not you want to side out the Force of Vigor, anticipating that your opponent is going to have Ravenous Trap versus Grafdigger's Cage versus Leyline that sort of thing. Uh, there's a huge mental game of like rock, pizzer, blah, 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 rock paper, scissors going on there um, that I wasn't fully ready for. Shout out to Mike Noble. Yeah, no, no kidding. Like that, that list was, was great. And he also uh, shipped me some good thoughts via discord. Yep. He is the arisen Nobopolis. Um, I do want to say, though, I would like to just take a moment to thank all of my opponents for overvaluing their hate cards against me, because I definitely had fair blue opponents mulligan to four looking for a ley line, and then they put a ley line in play, and I made a hollow one on turn one and killed them. So I think my opponents vastly underestimated how good their hate was going to be against me, and did not keep hands that did anything other than hate on the graveyard, and we're super punished for it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as coming from the fair blue side, like I said, I went X and 1, where X is like 8 or 9 against the aggro bizarre decks. And uh, it's awkward that Rug can't cast Leyline. Like, if it's not in the opener... You need to find it with Black Lotus at a point where it still matters if you want it to matter at all. Otherwise, it's just fuel for a deck. Uh, but Tabernacle, that is a card that can swing the game at any point against the Manalist deck that plays with creatures. So, uh, or near Manalist, in, depending on the build. So, like, I, I definitely did learn that, like, you don't have to mulligan to a hate card, like, of... Like, four cards with a ley line probably isn't good enough. Keep that five with two cantrips. Look for the tabernacle. Uh, I also learned about Force of Willing once upon a time. Just aggressively forcing once upon a time. I wasn't doing that for the first day and a half, and I started adopting it for the second day and a half, and wow, that is the right play. Yeah, there's there's so many times where you're like, uh, do I keep this questionable six with a once upon a time, or do I go to five? Where you decide to keep, and it's like, man, if they counter this, I am I am beyond screwed. Yeah, Once Upon a Time is the card that made this uh, archetype possible. Like, a, a deck that is as engine-y as the, the Hollowvine decks are, it's not like actual dredge that can go to one and win if that one is bizarre. Like, you actually do need some combination of zeros and venge vines and whatever. Uh, so, that... Once upon a time, just massively increases your capable hands, and that—that's what made this like this shell possible. Yeah. At the same time, though, I'm super hesitant to keep hands on seven that are reliant on a once upon a time resolving. Uh, like one of my mental rules of thumb is pitch the questionable seven 
built around Once Upon a Time, keep a six or five that looks reasonable if it resolves. Yeah, uh, it's still vintage, and we're still taking London Mulligans. You should never keep a sketchy seven. Like, any deck, any time, I don't care what you're playing, there's no excuse to keep a sketchy seven. That goes for Legacy 2 and Modern. <laughs> Every other format. I feel like Vintage is the format that rewards you the most for being disciplined with your mulligans. Like, yeah, Legacy and Modern, it still matters. But with Vintage, with the power level of everything, you're just way more rewarded for being good at mulliganing. Yeah, like the, the classic Vintage joke is that the early game is deck building, the mid game is mulligans, and the end game is turn one. <laughs> and while while that is like slightly exaggerated we already covered that vintage is not actually a turn one format the mulligan is part of the early game and it is in other formats too but that's especially true in vintage where you like in legacy like if you keep a sketchy six and you stumble like delver can punish you like death and taxes can punish you but some decks won't in vintage everyone is going to punish you everyone is playing vintage and they're gonna get you some everyone's the high school bully including phil Oh, I feel like especially me. Like these hollow one decks are are really good. Like I don't I don't necessarily think the card needs to be restricted or anything, but like, damn, they have good starts. Yeah, the hollow one needs like a Letterman jacket to just be the full high school bully. Uh, that that card is is messed up. Like I have to. I was boarding in a shattering spree against the hollow vine decks strictly out of respect for hollow one which is like that's the only target in the deck but i'm gonna lose if it sticks and i kept a slow hand yeah on the note of sideboarding there was definitely one of the rounds of the mirror where i'm like okay i'm gonna board out uh, a bunch of my force of vigors here then my opponent led on two hollow ones and i'm like oh no i have made a mistake <laughs> whoops <laughs> all right bryant what about on on your end well uh i recorded all of my matches, I didn't upload uh, my 5 a.m., but I recorded them all. My uh, So I guess it starts the night before. I got four hours of sleep. I tried to go to bed early. I quit drinking caffeine pretty early in the day on Friday. I couldn't fall asleep for the life of me, and I ended up getting four hours of sleep before the event started at 3 a.m., and I played my round one, which was a terrific match of magic. I just didn't happen to win, which is on YouTube, uh, the Epic Storm YouTube channel. And I then rallied back to 5-1, lost to Xerox, and then finished 6-3, unfortunately. I think I lost my last one. 6-3 is a fine record, but obviously it's not what you aim for. And then I was pretty pumped going into round two. And I won my round one in day two, and I'm like, finally, I'm going to have good tiebreakers in this one because my breakers in the other one were pretty miserable. Like, there were six threes. They got much better prizes than I got. So I was pumped about winning round one. I, at one point, I was 4-1. I got paired against uh, Kevin Cron, who ended up winning the second one, I believe, with uh, Jeskai. And Kevin just crushed me. Uh, so when I was a, a small child playing in like uh, the Connecticut, like Mana Drains and Mana Leak Opens, Kevin Cron was known as a shops player. So like I mulliganed to a hand that was good against shops and just was really disappointed to see turn one Tundra and Sustral Recall. I was like, oh man, I just lost this game. And then game two, I think I mulliganed to five and just got blown out. So like those games weren't even close. 
And then Randy Bueller, I don't know this style of decks that Randy Bueller plays, but we got paired. It turns out it was Doomsday, and like I kept a fair blue hand and just got steamrolled. And uh, so I, I ended up being 4-3, but by the time that I had lost those matches, I was exhausted in the second one. Uh, so like Brian, I could not sleep in between the rounds because I was drinking Red Bulls trying to stay up for the other one. So like by the time that I had gotten those two losses, I was misplaying a bunch too. Against Randy, I just sequenced like four of my cards wrong in a row. And I was like falling asleep while I was recording. It was just not good. So uh, I was like, I could sit here and try to play it out for the rest, or I could just go take a nap. And I decided that I valued sleeping way more than I valued play points or tickets or whatever. So I dropped, but I was a little disappointed that like I physically just couldn't focus or uh stay awake long enough for that one because i felt like i was playing really well up until that just guy round and even though i like got crushed by kevin cron i wasn't playing particularly well in either of those matchups after yeah and those are the type of matchups where you have to play perfectly because their deck is built to beat yours like uh i recorded a po league testing for eternal weekend and i i went four and one so it was actually a reasonable league and somebody pointed out in the comments almost immediately, like, you could have vamped for Tinker and won that game you lost. And I'm just like, oh, shit, yeah. Because, like, I had Sensei's topped a PO to the top, and then my opponent did something that made PO bad, and I just didn't react appropriately. And I had a one-turn window to guarantee, resolve, Tinker for Citadel and just go. And I just, I blinked and I missed it. And yeah, you, you have to be perfect when decks are built to beat you. I, pu- I pulled up the, the results. Kevin Cron got third in that event, by the way. Actual Dredge won. Oh, that was uh, the Wizard 2002. The middle yeah. event. Thank you. Uh, so my take after that second one is I went back and looked at all of my recorded matches. I didn't upload the 4-3 drop. I didn't feel like I, di- I didn't want people seeing me falling asleep recording. So <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. I went back and watched all my matches. I was like, uh, so I played nine, seven, 16 rounds. I think that out of those 16 rounds, I had two matchups and they were the mirror where Lavinia was relevant. I never once faced a bizarre deck and like the bizarre decks are where you want uh, Lavinia. I faced nothing but Xerox and bug. And then the two Piro mirrors over those 16 rounds. So, like that was it. It was Xerox bug mid range paradoxical outcome mirror. And Lavinia just like every time I drew it, I was like, this card sucks. And then like Teferi kept on getting blown up by Pyroblast, which happens, like it's a blue card. But I never felt like Teferi was doing anything. And then I like there's a couple of matchups where I just like had it stuck in my hand too, where I was like, okay, I'm playing this four color deck. I had a fetch for Pyroblast and turn one to counter ancestral. I now have Volk C and I'm sitting with double Teferi in my hand. So I was a little frustrated and I had signed up for the Sunday one that was at like 11, 11 a.m. So I had a full night's sleep before that one. I was feeling pretty good. I registered my four color list and I'm just like sitting there waiting to like start it. I'm like, yeah, we have 10 minutes. What am I going to do? So I I duplicated my deck list and I was just staring at it. I'm like, maybe I'll change some cards. And I was like, well, Lavinia sucks. I don't want to play that anymore. So I cut the two Lavinias. I'm like, okay, well, I have the two... Uh, Teferi's and Mentor's my white cards. I'm like, Teferi wasn't that good for me this weekend. Like, what if I swap them to something else? Like, what if I instead played a card that's good against Xerox and then like a repeal? 
And I was like, then I'm playing white just for mentor. And I was like, no, I should just play straight Grixis. And I added in grape shot and two Knights whispers and a repeal. And I think that was pretty much it. And I had one other slot. I played a dig through time. That was going to be my like Xerox slot. And that list went eight and two on Sunday. It was really powerful. So one of the things about like the four color list is that you can have clunky draws. This gets to play two preordain, two Knights whisper and dig. Uh, if you're familiar with Justin Gennari's Asper list, Justin just has two Knights Whisper. So I was playing like three extra cards to help the Xerox match up. And the list just felt really smooth. Like I never really had cards just stuck in my hand that I couldn't cast. Like I was always just churning. I was like, yes, give me more cards, which led to like super insane Yogmoss wills. And like, like playing that I could just felt a lot more powerful than what I had been doing, even though like in a vacuum, the cards that I was playing before are more powerful than the synergy based cards I was uh, running. But uh, I also had a number of opponents be like, okay, PO can't kill me if I just like pass with force up. And then I would just like grape shot them for three out of my hand. So that was kind of funny, but uh, I feel like that's like a brewer's advantage thing. Like you can't do that to someone twice. Yeah. I, my uh, second EW top eight was with rug paradoxical outcome that had grape shot as the, the kill and grape shot is so good. Like I don't need to tell you of all people <laughs> that grape shot is a good card, but like specifically against Xerox, if you're just like preordain uh, like Mox, gr- like Mox gets countered by Lavinia storm is now two grape shot Lavinia twice and Nars at once. And then you can just like, Yog will or snapcaster that grape shot later like you've just cleared two eight cards for one one card and it, it's like that's just so fucking good like it, it can actually like catch up to a monastery mentor like a lot of vintage mentors like vintage mentors come in two flavors it's like mentor pass with force of will up or mentor cantrip 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 time walk like those are the two versions and you can actually beat the the force of will version with grape shot yeah. So uh, my biggest takeaway on the Grixis list that I played was that I didn't really get to cast Dig Through Time that many times. Like I cast it once in 10 rounds. Like I said, I went eight into it. I cast it once. So I played the same list again in the Vintage Challenge the next week. And I drew Dig in like every opening hand and I just could never cast it. It was like drawing Tendrils in Legacy. You're like, great, I opened this giant uncastable card. And uh, it was fairly miserable. So if you're listening to this and you're like thinking about running my bad Grixis list, or I shouldn't say bad, more fun Grixis list, because I honestly think it might be more powerful. But if you're thinking about running it, run a Snapcaster Mage over the dig through time. Snapcaster can also buy back Grape Shot, which is pretty huge. So if you do use the Yawgmoss Will early and then need to Grape Shot something later, you can still win the game. Because I had that happen once where I was like, I'm all out of win conditions. Uh, So... Snapcaster is just worth it. Also, for those of you new to Vintage, if this wasn't clear, Snapcaster is also a non-land, non-token permanent that you can pick up with Paradoxical Outcome. And then you can snap that Paradoxical Outcome picking up that Snapcaster again. Like that, It's also just like a busted engine piece in addition to being a sweet value option when you're doing smaller things. I may have figured that out mid-recording one video. I'm like, okay, they're POing, but they have to find something. And then I saw the Snapcaster being picked up, and I'm like, oh no, I'm so dead. Yeah. Yep, that Snapcaster is probably worth 14 cards. Well, another thing is, like, against Xerox, just snapping Ancestral once, like, if the first one gets countered, snap it back. Like, you're back in that game. So, uh, 
a few things that I wanted to mention. So like Night's Whisper, I watched all of Justin Gennari's videos and Night's Whisper just like routinely overperformed against Xerox for him. But Justin wasn't running preordained and I was like, I just want more volume. So I stole the Night's Whisper from him. I realized that Grapeshot isn't as good as Mentor. I, I did mention that because I showed those to a couple people and they're like, you should just run one Tundra and one Mentor. And I was like, uh, like, so the big thing for me was all those bug matchups, uh, Assassin's Trophy was everywhere. And I just really wanted two basics. Like people would just like blow up your lands with trophies, assuming that you never had more basics in your deck. And I was like, well, I want two basics. And then all the shop sticks just picked up Ghost Quarter this weekend. So I was like, I want two basics. And then Sunday, having two basics at least won me two rounds where I was like, oh my God, this feels so good. Uh, so basic lands are really strong right now if you're playing vintage. I know the showcase is this weekend. It doesn't matter what deck you're playing. Just play a couple basic lands. Like I know you think your deck, your mana base can't support it. You'll thank me later. Just run at least two basics. Yeah, the, the stock list of Rug Xerox when I started working on it had three wastelands, a strip mine, and six dual lands. And I cut one of the wastelands for a, a basic island, and I don't regret it. Like just... Like you said, like Ghost Quarter and Assassin's Trophy specifically, like those being free is bullshit. (laughs) Punish them. Yeah. Um, There was only one change I was considering making to the deck list that I received, and that was adding in a basic land. And I sat down, started looking at my numbers, and I was like, I don't know that I'm comfortable changing this deck list. I really like how everything looks right now. Because, like, every fetch land you cut is one fewer way to get Dryad Arbor to cast the Hogak. And, like, cutting your dual lands is problematic for other reasons. That was, like, the one change where I'm like, I, I'm i not comfortable pulling the trigger on this, but this conceptually feels like it might be good. So, uh, why don't we head to our last section, which is, like, what do we think about Vintage moving forward? Yeah, so... Do we just kind of want to roll this one as a freeform, just kind of off the cuff section, or how Let's do, how do we want to do Philly. this one? All right. I mean, my answer is short. I'm going to play rug if I have to play vintage again for any sort of stakes in the near future. I think that deck is great. Um, j- not just because I did well with it, but I think I did well with it because it's great, not the other way around. What do we think about format health? Vintage is phenomenal right now. Like, I don't think I would restrict a card or unrestrict a card. Like, there are so many viable decks. Uh, I think three different archetypes won the three different days, and uh, the the top eights were pretty rich. Um, unless, like, unless you think, like, Xerox as a macro archetype is too good right now, but... All their best cards are already restricted, and the 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 archetype is spread over Bug, Rug, Jeskai, and Four Color. So, like, what would you hit if you could? So, like, I, I think the format is healthy and good right so now. So, I, yeah, I am in the Vintage Discord, and uh, it's brought up at least once a week, and I just can't get on board with it. People think that the format is too based around Ancestral Recall, and they want to unrestrict Mental Misstep to make Ancestral Recall worse. And, like, I understand their thought process. I just don't agree with it whatsoever. Uh, You can't see this, listener, because this is an auditory medium, but I just rolled my eyes so far it hurt. (laughs) Like, that... 
Like I, I, I was doing some like studying up before this these events last weekend, and I pulled up Matt Sperling's list when he top aided champs the year that I won, because he did some innovative things with rugs Xerox. Uh, he was basically blue red with a green splash. He cut all the fluster storms for spell pierces. Uh, he cut the ancient grudges for nature's claims. He just like did a lot of things that uh, I think he didn't play gush. Like he cut a lot of sacred cows and it was, they were all brilliant for how the format actually looked. So I wanted to revisit that list, see if spell pierce made more sense than fluster storm in current meta and stuff. And I pulled up the picture of his list and right in the middle, it's a, it's a photo of the physical cards in the article he wrote. There's just four mental missteps right in the middle of the photo. And I was like, (laughs) I don't miss that one bit. That was so shitty. Like, I can't believe that vintage players are saying that four mental misstep was ever good or healthy or the solution to anything, because I'll tell you all that happened was every turn one was one drop misstep, misstep, misstep. And then like, okay, we both have three cards in hand. Let's continue playing magic. So I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I actually got into vintage during the arena crash of magic online arena had been announced. It was open for beta And all of a sudden, tickets and cards on Magic Online were worth nothing. And I was like, I guess I should buy into Vintage. So I bought all of Paradoxical Outcome, literally everything I didn't already own. So like, I still owned a couple cards from like TES, but for the most part, I bought the entire uh, Paradoxical Outcome deck for 87 tickets. I will not forget this. And I was like, (laughs) all right, sweet. I own a Vintage deck. I like bought another modern deck. And I I've sold it since then, but like I bought another modern deck for really cheap. And I was like, all right, well, if the client bounces back, this is going to be sweet. So I started playing in vintage challenges. I think I played two before I gave up on vintage just because of how miserable getting mental missed up over and over and over again was. So when COVID hit, I was like, I guess I could try vintage again. And then I've been on a roll ever since. Yeah, that card is just so dumb. And the play pattern, like if it didn't counter itself. Maybe the play patterns would be more tolerable, but just like the fact you can misstep misstep just makes the entire format shitty. It's also one of those every deck plays four sorts of cards, even the non-blue decks in many cases. Yeah, it, it, it it's not a good card. Design mistake, get it out of here. So I, I don't agree with that proposal at all. I'm an outsider here, obviously, like I'm relatively fresh to the format, but ancestral is just fine like obviously it's an insane card but a lot of times people are like mystical tutoring for it or something first and so they set themselves back a card in order to draw three so they really only end up with a divination worth of value um and then like a lot of the decks that i was playing about didn't super care about the ancestral like when i was playing shops my opponent plays their ancestral after i have two spheres in like cool that was their turn like yeah, beep, beep, i attack you <laughs> yeah like the the card is very very good but like not once that i feel like man this card is oppressive get it out like it's a good card yeah so my my most broken hand of the entire weekend this is on video in my top eight matches it was game one against dredge in the quarters and i didn't know what they were on and my deck only plays six pieces of power, and four of them were in my opening hand. Like, I just had Lotus, Mox, Mox, Ancestral. And I was like, oh, baby. 
grease me up, call me Charlie, <laughs> let's go. And my opponent just played Bizarre of Baghdad. And I was like, fuck, my hand is garbage. <laughs> and like my my opening, like they went Bizarre of Baghdad, uh, draw two, discard some Drudgers, go. And I'm like, uh, Black Lotus, Preordain, Ancestral Recall into like a Pyroblast for like counter backup, Renin six, regrow a land and just died. <laughs> like none of that mattered because they were doing uh, one of the things that is available in Vintage, which is Dredge. Yep. So I think that Vintage is in a pretty good spot right now. Uh, I I still feel this way, despite Wizard 2002 proving me wrong. But like, I don't think Dredge is that great of a deck, but it won one of the events. If people don't respect you, Dredge has always been that secret boogeyman and Dredge hasn't been respected in some time. So I'm not terribly shocked that it did really well in one of them. Yep. And I played it in the top eight of another one. Like Dredge is always there. And uh, the the things that you do against Hogak are not all good against Dredge and vice versa. Like there's a whole lot of overlap. Don't get me wrong, like considerable overlap, but it's not a perfect circle. So like you can, there's different ways to bizarre. Now. Well, the tie to legacy, uh, when there's multiple combo decks that benefits all of them because the hate never overlaps perfectly. So I think the deck benefiting the most right now is doomsday because people run anti-storm cards expecting them to be good against Doomsday, and that's just not how it works. So people be like, yeah, I boarded a Mindbreak Trap against Doomsday, and they just killed me. Yeah, that's how, like, Mindbreak Trap isn't a good card against Doomsday. You need cards that are more well-rounded. But uh, if you run a more rounded card, you might die against Reanimator or Oops All Spells or whatever. So the more variants there are, the better it is. Well, folks, it took two hours, but Bryant managed to complain about Mindbreak Trap and try to convince people to cut it. <laughs> Everything has come full circle. It's a great magic card. Just terrific design. I don't know what that does, and I'm not playing around it. All right, do we have any more thoughts? I'm thoughtless. We know that. I am also thoughtless. You know, go yeah, back to twirl your beard, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> I will. It's really fun. It is really satisfying. All right. So beard twirling is come to an end for the week. Uh, thanks for listening to us talk about vintage. We'll be back to legacy next week. But this this trip into the ancient past was a lot of fun for us. I hope you enjoyed it, too. <laughs> <laughs>